Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. In the years since the financial crisis, banks and other financial firms have been pretty loath to strike new deals. If you're running a bank, you just spent the years after 2007 trying to survive rather than contemplating a deal. At least that was the case until last week. A $66 billion transaction, the largest banking transaction probably in the last decade. BB&T and SunTrust just announcing they will combine in a merger of equals. And now analysts and bank executives are trying to figure out who's going to be next to join forces. This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, we dig into the $66 billion BB&T SunTrust deal and find out what it means for banking in America. Two of my colleagues here in the FT's New York Bureau have been following the U.S. banking industry and the lack of deal-making in recent years. I'm Rob Armstrong. I'm the finance editor, and that means I write about banks, insurance companies, fintech. I'm James Fontenelle-Lacan. I'm the U.S. deals and corporate finance editor. I also co-run Due Diligence, which is the FT's um, kind of deals newsletter. I asked how the U.S. banking industry got so big in the first place. Why are there so many small and mid-sized banks in the U.S.? Well, there's two reasons. One is historical and regulatory, and one is economic. The historical reason is until sometime in the 70s or maybe the 80s, you couldn't have interstate banking, which means each state basically had its own banking system. Because of that, we turned into a country that just has a lot of banks rather than a few big ones. Uh, The second reason is that it's really nice to run a bank. If you're a bank CEO, you have your little bank, you live in your little town, everybody loves you down at the country club, you get paid pretty good, probably don't work all that hard. So when somebody comes along and says, I want to roll up your little bank and turn it to part of my big bank, you say, maybe when I retire, but I like this gig just fine. So there's this cliche in the banking business, banks are sold, not bought. How would you describe the role that these small and mid-sized banks do play in these communities or or in their regions? Yeah, I mean, the, the brands are strong for a reason. It's very important for all banking businesses to have strong, you know, they talk about the stickiness of the relationships, right? And so you give people their mortgage and you're lending money to small and medium businesses. And so they are not only good franchises economically in many cases, but they are really community institutions. You know, people bank where their parents banked and et cetera. That's where they get their college loan, mortgage, auto loan, et cetera. Before the crisis, there was a fair amount of rolling up of the bigger of these banks. So the regional what we call a regional bank is a bank franchise, usually multi-state, you know, usually with hundreds of branches, but it's not at the same level as the JP Morgans or the Banks of Americas or the Citibanks. So they're not truly, they're not national banks. And there was, there was always talk that eventually 
this industry would consolidate much more. And it was starting to happen before the crisis rolled around. And then because of the crisis, everyone lost their appetite for if you're running a bank, you just spent the years after 2007 trying to survive rather than contemplating a deal. I don't think anyone really expected a bank as big as Lehman to uh, you know, be in a position that it's in now. A lot of people say, oh, the Obama administration was like anti-bank deals. I mean, they were in the thick of like trying to <laughs> fix a huge mess. <laughs> yeah. Over the past two years, we have faced the worst recession since the Great Depression. Eight million people lost their jobs. Tens of millions saw the value of their homes and retirement savings plummet. And many have been forced to shut their doors. So it wasn't like ideologically they were against it, I think. A lot of people within the Democratic Party at the time and the Obama administration thought, yeah, there are probably too many banks in, in the U.S. But at the moment, like, we've had a whole thing with this too big to fail. We don't want people to start getting together again, creating, like, gigantic institutions which could pose, like, systemic threats to not only the U.S. economy, but the, the global economy. So, And while the rules left abuse and excess unchecked, they also left taxpayers on the hook if a big bank or financial institution ever failed. I mean, there's something like 5,000 FDIC-insured banks in America, which is mad, right? And some of them are tiny, you know, and some of them are huge, but the number is just staggering. And it's only down, you know, by a 1,000 over the last decade or something like that. You know, it's just still a massive, fragmented industry. So here's the thing. As the U.S. economy started to pick up again after the crisis, a lot of other industries started to see consolidation. But it wasn't happening in banking, at least not to the same degree. I mean, smaller deals have been picking up for some time. And the big question was, when are two important regional banks going to get together? Breaking news uh, from the banking industry, a $66 billion transaction, the largest banking transaction Probably in the last decade, BB&T and SunTrust just announcing they will combine in a merger of equals. I mean, almost everyone I spoke to about this deal was like, if you told me yesterday that this was going to happen, I wouldn't have believed you. Because they thought there was not regulatory appetite, the banks were focused on organic growth rather than mergers. And so it really came as a shock, I think, to everyone who follows the industry. What can you tell us about these banks? Well, they're about the, they're not very different in size. That's BB&T is slightly bigger. Yeah, BB&T is slightly bigger, and SunTrust has more of a capital markets business, a kind of Wall Streety correct uh, business, which BB&T doesn't have. But they're basically big deposit taking institutions. BB&T is kind of a mid Atlantic y kind of bank, and SunTrust is an Atlanta bank, so they have some overlap, which means they can save some money, shut some branches, say it quietly, fire some people. But they, they're in fundamentally the same business, collecting deposits, lending out the money. And James, what are the terms of the deal? Who's buying whom? Who's buying who is, is, is a key question here because the two banks, BB&T and SunTrust, kind of went out of their way to say this is a, a mergers of equal. But we're confident we're going to have the best MOE possible because we're off to the best start possible. Even within the FT, we, 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 amongst our colleagues, we had a big debate. Is this really yeah. a mergers of equal or and, not? Yeah. And, I think you know we tend to believe that mergers of equals don't exist. I mean, I, that, that's that's been my view. Yeah. But I would say this deal is closer to a merger of equals than you know one bank is bigger than the other. 
ultimately one management team is going to be in charge of the combined entity. And that's the BBT, BBT side. side. Uh, so ultimately, somebody's already buying something. But because of the way the deal was priced and the way it was structured, this was about as close as you can get to a merger of equals. And you know the market responded very favorably to the structure, I would say. Uh, there's your bank rally. There's SunTrust. Uh, there's BB&T. Most of the other big super regional banks, as we like to call them, they're all trading up. SunTrust's shareholders will end up owning about 43% of the, like of, of, the, of the combined entity. So, you know, the BB&T shareholders will own the majority of the, of, of the company. And the other thing is SunTrust shareholders will get a special dividend. The other thing about this deal is that together they're going to become the roughly sixth or seventh largest bank in the country with more than $400 billion in assets. So then that's a big... Yeah. I mean, that's half... You know, where I come from, that's... um, Half a trillion dollars. Yeah, you know. So, I mean, you know, same same with where I come from. And I mean, comparatively, like J.P. Morgan is what about two point five? The, the the big ones are all about two, two. Yeah, yeah, that two trillion yeah. kind of mark. So, so it's not quite that level, but you know, you're big. entering into the big leagues. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that brings me to the question then of what changed in the regulatory environment or just in the sort of general mood that has allowed. This or has made this a sort of a wise decision now versus even this time last year? Well, there hasn't been a gigantic change in the law. That it's not like something was illegal under Obama that's legal now. But one thing is that clearly the, all the various bank regulators under the Trump administration are more sympathetic to mergers and basically letting banks do what they want than they were under Obama. So there's a different tone now. By liberating small banks from excessive bureaucracy, and that's what it was, bureaucracy, we are unleashing the economic potential of our people. Which maybe gave these guys some confidence. Now, there there was a, a, a proposed change in the law last year that made regulation potentially slightly less onerous on banks over $250 billion. And so that in assets in assets over two hundred fifty billion dollars in assets, and that uh, also probably gave the executive some confidence that they wouldn't be totally stomped by regulators once they got to be basically double their size. I spoke to a couple of bankers, and they don't think this is going to become a platform for rolling up a ton of of other ba- of other banks in in America. They might do other like strategic acquisitions. Uh, the CEO of BB&T has been quite outspoken about wanting to do deals. But, you know, the point is the environment for deal making in the U.S. among U.S. companies in the banking sectors and beyond is incredibly friendly. There's a lot of talk about other regional banks getting together. Just if the question is, is Goldman Sachs or is J.P. Morgan going to buy another bank? I don't think so. For the very biggest banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Citibank. From a regulatory point of view, it's extremely hard to imagine them getting bigger by buying another deposit taking. That would just wouldn't go through. <laughs> but there's kind of them. There's sort of four monstrously huge 
you know, deposit taking banks, and then there's everybody else. And then else. there's five thousand other guys <laughs> that, have, that that might want to tie up. Yeah, yeah. So, so on that on that note, um, does this change anything for this, this particular type of BB and T and SunTrust? Is this going to have a dramatic um, impact on either of their customers? I, you know, you're going to see branches close, and um, people who've been going to a branch for a long time get attached. You know, but this is how the economics of something like this work. It's a retail business. When you have a retail merger, stores close. You know that's what gives it its com- com- its logic, its economic logic. So that would be the the big impact on customers. The other impact is, in theory, when you are a larger bank, banking is a scale business. You make more money as you grow. Your margins increase. It makes it possible to invest in technology. And I think one of the things that is going to drive further consolidation in banking is you have you know, J.P. Morgan famously spending something like eleven billion dollars a year. Is that the figure? It's some astronomical huge, yeah. figure on on technology. A small chain, you know, a small regional bank cannot it, can't, can't even. There's no table. They can't even make the table stakes in terms of the app and digital banking and making their back office more efficient and modernized. They just can't. So you get bigger, you achieve some efficiencies, and you reinvest that money in being technologically competitive. And so if you have to close down the branch, maybe you can eventually offer a better sort of digital experience to, yes. you know. In terms of like cost savings, they're talking about $1.6 in within like the next three years. So that's like substantial in, savings. Yes. However, like bank mergers are notoriously hard to kind of get done in terms of the integration part of it. Is, is, that, like, is that a cult, like integrating the culture of the bank, both the, the culture, but also just simply the IT and it's yeah, like yeah. the systems and like the, the branches. Very easy. You shut down literally the you know the, the, the branch in front of your own one. Yeah, in, enormous savings. But then like actually integrating the the, the, the paperwork the, and all that is it's actually the back way more spaghetti. Absolutely, you know? it's like. Probably IBM will be very happy about it. If you talk to a bank CEO, you know, as we often do at the FT, the conversation turns pretty quickly to their IT problems. Any big bank has been made out of 10 other banks. They got 10 systems. They're banging their head on the table because it's not like you can just turn off and start again. You have to fix the thing while it's all running and processing transactions. It's all happening. It's a total nightmare. Another aspect that could go wrong, terribly wrong here, which is worth discussing, is the merger of equals thing. Hi, I'm Bill Rogers, Chairman and CEO of SunTrust. And I'm Kelly King, Chairman and CEO of BB&T. BB&T and SunTrust are coming together in a merger of equals. We just absolutely believe this merger of equals creates value for everyone involved. This is a true merger of equals. It's fun on the day you announce, stock price goes up, you have the two CEOs like with the world's dorkiest fist bump. That was so awkward. (laughs) We really hope you have a great day. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. And But, you know, a couple of years in, you still got two management teams there looking at each other. And they're thinking, are this equals? The BBT, BNT CEO said that he will leave in three years. Yeah, and then and then the other guy From gets phased, phased in. Okay. And you know, meanwhile, all those guys have guys under them, or or gals, or whoever. They've got a team that has come up with them. Yeah. And there is not going to be enough room. There's not going to be enough seats. At the table, uh, At yeah. the table for all these people, and they're all looking at each other right now, thinking. I'd rather have a seat than not have a seat. 
Right. <laughs> and what happens in three, four years when the current CEO thinks, I you know what, I actually feel pretty great. <laughs> I might want to stay another <laughs> I don't years. want to retire. This is exactly. a pretty good game. Yeah. So that's why. You know, All right. Lots yeah, to yeah. watch. Um, I am curious, though. So we talked about why this particular deal might have happened now and maybe why yeah. the time is ripe for, for more of these kinds of roll-ups. But I'm also curious about or, or interested in what you think about where we're at in the economic cycle. What does where we're at in the cycle mean for this particular deal and then just more consolidation? The overarching kind of question is like we've had a ton of deals in most industries, not really banking, as as we've discussed up to now. And the reason is because you know, the economy is kind of OK, but it's not growing crazy. Interest rates are still historically and relatively low. And now you know the Fed said like they're putting kind of a pause for a while. So cash is cheap. So the, the short answer is, I think the, the basic conditions for deal making are as good as ever. And and if you also consider the fact that, you know, taxation for a lot of these corporations has gone down massively and some of them will be spending you know, buybacks, um, very little in capital expenditure. Yeah. Uh, so mo- a lot of it will be used for, for deals. And so, again, banks are slightly different from like regular companies, but it's like, yeah, we will see more deals. I think it will force rivals of these two banks to think, huh, maybe, yeah. maybe, what, what maybe, are we doing yeah, now? What are yeah. we doing now? Should we yeah. respond? And it might be that two equally sized banks will try to get together or you can see maybe another big, fairly you know, big regional player buying up much smaller banks and like try to build a kind of national, a national kind of franchise. JFK would understand this better than I am, but deals are a cyclical phenomenon. You would think people would do deals when the cycle was low and companies were cheap. That is not how it works. People buy companies when companies are at their most expensive. Animal spirits are flowing. People feel good about their prospects. They're ready to take a risk. So, and you, you know, it's usually a late cycle phenomenon. You know, in the late innings, everybody's like, okay, things are good. I got money in my pocket right now. Let's get it done because I know I'm not going to be able to get it done in a recession when nobody wants to hear about you and your stupid deal making. Right. So one of the phrases that emerged during the crisis was this idea of a bank being too big to fail. Too big to fail. Too big to fail. Too big to fail. That a financial institution could be so significant to the banking system that if it failed, it might take the economy down with it. Uh, a lot of post-crisis regulation, these were meant to keep some of these banks in check, making them subject to greater regulatory scrutiny if they were of a certain size. So does this particular deal that we've been talking about, does this change that narrative or at least change the definition of what it means to be too big? You know, the the, the great irony for me is that what we got out of too big to fail was bigger banks, right? <laughs> and... Uh, Part of it was because it becomes harder. It makes it more complicated to run a bank, the regulatory system. And then, so then if you're a bigger institution, you can afford to pay that price. And, you know, weaker institutions were crushed. They got bought by the larger institutions. So I don't think too big to fail is a thing. That's my guess. So, I mean, they won't let, again, they won't let JP Morgan buy another major deposit taking institution, but. What is too big to fail at this point? From time to time, you do have people saying, should should JP Morgan be broken up, right? And I, I get your point. I mean, the bigger technically, you're spreading the risk. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I didn't mean to suggest that. I, 
I don't think there are some things that are too big to fail. I meant as a policy. Right. Right. Are as we a, really a, sort of policing the no, size no, of these companies? Yeah, yeah. No, that, I mean, <laughs> the big ones are just... Humongous. Yeah, they're like a, an American city in employees, you know, that 300,000 employees or whatever, and they're humongous. And I think there's still an argument that they're, if not too big to fail, they're too big to regulate. Like, I don't know. Who understands how J.P. Morgan works or Citibank? Nobody know, Nobody understands that, you know? Talking I'm a banking the, reporter, right. and um, they, these institutions yeah. are so big they defy understanding. Yeah. The last question, though, is so what are you – so with all everyone sort of thinking what happens next, where are you going to be looking without giving away the sort of uh, trade secrets of, of your reporting? I mean, what I did yesterday is I called all of my kind of bankers who kind of tend to advise you know, financial services companies. And most of them were focusing not on big banks. In, in recent years, there's been a ton of deals in insurance, a lot of fintech kind of deals. Um, and so the question was precisely, you know, do you see any – you know, a PNC getting together with a, you know, yeah. U.S. bank corp. The overwhelming response that I got is, I, I don't think you should see this as, as a trend. Mm. People will get together. There will be deals. But it's like the idea that there's going to be a wave. Most of the people I spoke to said, I, I don't think so. And, 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 and most of them said, like, the CEOs of these rival banks are calling us up and asking us, you know, what what should we think about this deal and how should we look at it? And like, they're seeking advice. But there wasn't a knee-jerk reaction where everybody's like, I don't think, for example, there's going to be a counter bid. Coming back to a point I made earlier, you have to have, to get a deal done like this, a deal where a premium is not paid, you have to get a CEO of a regional bank who has a really good life to basically give up his job. You know, they. I think you know. The usually the the change of control clause. They'll get three years salary or something is what a typical bank CEO will get when his bo- his bank gets bought and control changes. So you have to find a CEO who has a well contained ego in order to get that done. The corporate world is not crawling with CEOs <laughs> with well contained egos. So uh, that's that's a that's a hurdle. Okay, so we'll we'll be watching. We will too. too. (laughs) You can read more from James, Rob, and the rest of our banking team at FT.com. And we'd love to hear what you thought of today's show, as well as any previous episodes this season. You can send us an email to BehindTheMoneyAtFT.com or tweet me at Amy P. Keen. That's A-I-M-E-E-P-K-E-A-N-E. And if you're not already an FT subscriber and are interested in taking a look at our latest subscription offer, just go to ft.com forward slash offer. Thanks to Eric Krupke for his help producing this episode. We'll be back next week. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.